This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Scott Shapiro is a professor at Yale who teaches the philosophy of law. He is also a hacker and the author of a new history of hacking, cybersecurity and cyberwar called Fancy Bear Goes Fishing. In it, he sets out to answer three questions. Why is the internet so insecure? How do hackers exploit its vulnerabilities? And what can we do about it? If you've ever wondered whether hackers are all savants with black hoodies who can break into the Pentagon from their mum's basements, he is here to disabuse you of that notion. The truth is a whole lot more interesting. Scott, your new book is called Fancy Bear Goes Fishing. It's a whimsical title. It could be the title of a children's picture book. But it's not a whimsical book. Who is Fancy Bear and what mischief do he and his friend Cozy Bear get up to? Yeah, sure. So Fancy Bear is the codename given by the cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike for the one of the elite hacking units of Russian military intelligence, the GRU. So they're a group of people. And Cozy Bear is the codename given to a comparable hacking unit of the SVR, which is uh, Russia's foreign intelligence operation. So it turned out that both Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear had hacked the Democratic National Committee in 2015 and then 2016. And the DNC hack could be considered an act of cyber war. I mean, this is a major news story. But what inspired you, a mild-mannered law professor, to learn to hack age 52 and write a book about this subject? Sure. So my previous book, which I wrote with my colleague Ona Hathaway called The Internationalists, was a history of war from 1600 to 2014. So when I went out to talk about the book, of course, everyone wanted to know, well, what's next? You know, what's the next phase of war? And everyone was talking about cyber war. And I thought to myself, well, cyber war, uh, I have a technical background. I was a coder for 10 years before I went to law school and then got a PhD in philosophy. I was a computer I say computer science in college. I had published in theoretical computer science. Um, and then I went, I thought, okay, well, I could learn about this. And it turned out that 
I couldn't, or at least I couldn't initially. It was so hard to penetrate this field. There were all these weird terms, and there weren't any books that kind of walked you through how hacking works, or at least how hacking works for somebody who already didn't know how it basically worked. So I became really enthralled by how does this activity work, and how can somebody get into my computer from halfway around the world when if I don't have my username and password, I can't get into my own computer. You know, um, uh, Arthur Clarke famously said that uh, any advanced technology always appears like magic. And hacking seemed like magic to me. And I knew it obviously wasn't. Um, so I just spent an enormous amount of time learning how hacking works and then learning how to hack, then learning how to teach other people how to hack. You hacked the Yale Law Department website. Yes, I did. My dean was not happy about that in the slightest. But um, that's one of the that's one of the things that I, I I'm always cautious about, which is that I teach students how to hack, and I know that there's a temptation to use it for um, well. Maybe not malicious ends in intent, but you could actually violate the law because from your perspective, it's kind of a game. And so I, when I hacked the Yale Library website, I will just say I didn't go so far as to break the law. I went up to the edge because um, I would like to spend my next sabbatical, you know, um, in, you know in Italy, not in federal penitentiary. We're going to unpack all of that a lot in the course of this interview. But I will just say now, you do make hacking sound fun. Well, uh, you know, guilty. Um, <laughs> I mean, it is fun. It is a, it's a game. It's like, how do you overcome obstacles? Not all hacking is criminal. There are safe and legal ways of doing it, which I can describe um, how that happens. And when I teach students, I'm extraordinarily careful to give caveats. I talk about it before each class. Remember, this is illegal, some of these techniques. And we set things up so that I don't end up on the cover of the New York Times. In order to understand how hacking works, you create a <laughs> distinction between upcode downcode, and metacode. Can you explain each of those concepts in turn? Yes, yeah, sure. So metacode is like the stuff that you see in the matrix, the ones and zeros that fall behind you. Imagine you put your finger, your hands on the keyboard. So anything below your fingertips, I call downcode. And that's just regular computer code. It's like application uh, code, your operating system, the firmware and your router, yada, yada, yada. Upcode is everything above your fingertips. So the law, social norms, cultural mores, the rules of your employment, terms of service of websites, all the kinds of rules that give us incentives to act various ways. Um, I'll talk about the relationship between upcode and downcode in a second, but I just want to say what metacode is. Metacode is the principles of computation. They're like the philosophical, what, 
philosophers call metaphysical principles that make computers possible. It's kind of amazing that computers even exist. What is it about computation that makes a physical computing device possible? That is Metacode. Metacode was first uh, discovered by the great British mathematician Alan Turing and set out in his 1936 article. And what I try to show is that downcode, technical computer code, upcode the rules that, that human beings follow, and metacode, which is the philosophical principles of computation, they all interact in very interesting ways to make hacking possible. Uh, let me talk about upcode and downcode. So most people think that hacking is about downcode. And in some sense, it obviously is. Hacking is a very technical activity, and you have to know a lot about computers in order to hack an operating system or what have you. But just because hacking is a technical activity, that doesn't mean that the way to stop it or the most efficient or effective way to stop it is through technical means. Just because hackers manipulate downcode doesn't mean that the solution is better downcode. In fact, the way to think about it, I would suggest, is that we need better upcode. Think of it this way. How do we get downcode? We don't find downcode in the wild, in nature. Human beings write it. And they write it because they are subject to certain types of incentives. They make money. They find it fun. It makes them cool uh, in the eyes of their friends, what have you. Upcode constitutes the rules and norms which give human beings incentives to write the code that they do. And so what I try to show in Fancy Bear Ghost Fishing is that wherever there's exploitation of the downcode, you can ultimately trace that to some problem in the upcode. That is, that the technical vulnerabilities in the computer code ultimately are traceable to political, social, human vulnerabilities in the upcode. So instead of keep on throwing money at cybersecurity to uh, solve our problem of insecurity, we should be thinking about how do we change people's incentives, how do we change the rules, which will produce better downcode. How have governments, especially your own government, addressed the rise of hacking? Yeah, so um, the first laws against hacking were passed in 1984 um, in a typical American fashion, Ronald Reagan, who was president at the time, saw a movie called War Games, uh, which starred Matthew Broderick, which was a story of a teen who hacked into a NORAD computer and almost started World War III. And President Reagan had seen the movie before uh, on Friday beforehand and was very alarmed. And there was... Um, then the next week, he was meeting with um, you know high-ranking um, congressional officials and military officials, and he said, "Has anybody seen War Games?" Um, they hadn't, because they have jobs. And yeah, Reagan had a job, <laughs> <laughs> ish. Um, and so um, he said, "Will you will you look into this?" And the military had been studying this for about two decades, and came back and said, "It's actually." 
pretty bad. Um, and this was the motivation for Congress passing the first law against hacking. And then 1986, the main law, which was the, which is called the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is if anybody gets um, prosecuted for hacking, they get prosecuted for, 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 this, for this law. And that was the first um, serious criminal law against hacking um, that was produced by the uh, United States. One of the stories that I uh, tell in the book um, is that even though the U.S. government had passed laws against hacking, there were very few rules which imposed legal liability for software vulnerabilities. So that means that, and still true today in the United States, that if you write like bad down code with serious security vulnerabilities in it, victims cannot sue you for that. And that's completely different from like a toaster, for example. If you buy a defective toaster, you get your money back. If it blows up, the, the manufacturer has to pay for damages. When it comes to software, it's a kind of legal liability black hole. And so that meant that there were no reasons for companies to actually invest in making strong, secure downcode. You're not the typical hacker. Who is the typical hacker? Is it Elliot and Mr. Robot, mentally unwell, but intellectually brilliant young man in a hoodie? Is it a specialist in the Russian military, like fancy the members of Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear? You know, there are some big characters in this book, both on the hacking side and on the cybersecurity side. Yeah, sure. So hacking is an activity that for which there are lots of motivations. So some hacks are committed by bored teenagers. I mean, actually, a lot of the uh, hacks in my book are, are uh, created, are launched by um, bored teenagers. But by and large, hacking in today's day and age is done for money. It's financially motivated cybercrime. And the people who engage in it tend not to be young boys. They tend to be bit older. They tend to be very educated. They tend to have pretty good technical abilities, but they live in parts of the world that are less developed, that have less access to a robust tech economy. They are underemployed. And if you have a bunch of young men who are underemployed, who, want, who have skills and for which there are people who are willing to pay them more than they can get in the legitimate marketplace for those skills, you're going to see them use it. And that's what's been happening. So much of the cybercrime that we're talking about these days comes out of Eastern Europe, where there aren't Googles, where there aren't Metas, where there aren't Microsofts, for these people who are well-educated in STEM fields and engineering, um, in computers, but they have no way to make money um, or as much money um, as they want to legitimately. One thing that's consistent in this book is that hackers are not geniuses. The tools of their trade are pretty straightforward, and they have as much to do with cognitive science, understanding how to manipulate the behavior of the user, as anything that's more technical. 
Yes. Yeah, so uh, this it turns out that lots of hacking is about tricking human beings. And then the question becomes, why are we so easy to fool? So as I, as I, as I say in the book, so much of uh, hacking is not computer science, it's cognitive science. It's figuring out how we can trick each other into divulging information or resources for the hacker to collect. Now I want to let me let me uh, uh, delve a little bit more into this and say why are human beings so easy to trick? Well, this goes to metacode, what I had talked about before. One of the principles of metacode is that computing is a physical process of manipulating symbols. So computers are possible because Computing is manipulating symbols. So that sounds complicated, but it, in some sense, that's what we do when we're growing up. We learn how to manipulate symbols. So like when in elementary school, you learn how to add a bunch of numbers, you're learning how to manipulate symbols. So five plus seven, you, write, you, know, you draw a line, you write down two, you carry the one. And so that is what computation is, or this is what Turing had essentially discovered. Now, if you think about human beings and our brains, our brains are in part computers and they are physical computing devices. And because they are physical computing devices, they are subject to the laws of physics. And the hardware that this computer runs on, the neurons, is absurdly slow absurdly slow. So an electron in a computer runs roughly at the speed of light at 186,000 miles per second, whereas I think the fastest neuron uh, transmits nerve signals at a 275 miles per hour. So we're talking about six orders of magnitude difference between what, compute, what, what digital computers can do and what our brains can do. Now, that's a big problem if you're trying to survive. In order to survive, Evolution has developed certain shortcuts, certain tricks, what the uh, behavioral economists call heuristics, that allow us to make very quick decisions to protect ourselves. Sometimes they get the wrong answer, but often they get the right answer. So let's say you're walking and all of a sudden you see a green squiggly thing on the ground. You might kind of jump and go, I, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, what is the word for screaming? Yikes. <laughs> Yikes. Now, if it turns out that it's not a snake, but it's a garden hose, you'll look silly. But that's okay, because if it were a snake, and if it were poisonous, you would survive. Now, what I try to show in the book is how hackers exploit these shortcuts to not allow us to survive, but the opposite. They exploit these shortcuts that evolution has given us to survive, but often gives us the wrong answers, and hackers are really good at figuring out how to get us to give the wrong answers. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. 
With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And that's by doing things like sending us an email that tells us we must act now, otherwise we're vulnerable to something. Or sending us a love letter from a mysterious admirer. Absolutely. So one of the main tricks, I mean, it's not terribly sophisticated, but one of the main trick hackers use is scare us. And when we're afraid, what's the evolutionarily natural thing to do when you're afraid is to try to get rid of the threat as quickly as possible. The problem is, is that we overshoot all the time. Like the example of the garden hose. You know, if I say, yikes, well, I overshot. Well, that's, you know, that's, you know, at least I didn't get uh, bitten. Well, when it comes to hacking, my saying, yikes, somebody has my password in Ukraine, I, my, I, I, I better change my password immediately. Well, slow down for a second. When people say to me, what, what can I do to slow down hacking? I often say, slow yourself down. If you find yourself afraid, stop. Say to yourself, I'm afraid maybe somebody's trying to exploit that. If you take a breath and you think, wait, is this real or am I being tricked? You will often find that you are being tricked. So don't automatically click that link. Take a breath. I do, when, sometimes when I get uh, an email and it looks, looks legit, I still myself stop and I say to myself, okay, we're, could this be a trick? And that's what I think we need to do going forward. The researcher Sarah Gordon is critical to your understanding of the hacker psyche. And she is a fascinating woman in her own right. Can you tell us about her and how she became involved with the hacker or hackers known as Dark Avenger? Yeah, so uh, one of the wonderful things about doing the history of hacking is uncovering unsung heroes in the past that, you know, are not written up in books but are were really important. So Sarah Gordon is a really quite fascinating uh, woman. She was not a security professional she grew up very poor. Um, she grew her own food. She really, uh, a, a kind of a like a wonderful character, talks unbelievably quickly. I've never met anyone that talks that quickly in my life. And um, she bought a 
PCXT in 1991 uh, used and uh, had a virus. So it was called the ping pong virus. And it was just like this bullet that went back um, across the screen every time the floppy drive accessed uh, was accessed um, on the half hour. A, you know, a ping pong ball would kind of go across the screen. And she was really interested in like, what is this? So the web didn't exist at the time or it wasn't, it wasn't really usable at the time. So she went on something called FidoNet and she discovered a whole community of people um, who were virus writers and who, who talked about how to write computer viruses and talked about and traded them. And she discovered that the best ones were in Bulgaria and that the best one was this, uh, this virus writer known as Dark Avenger. And uh, he had a crush, he developed a crush on her. Um, and he wouldn't talk to anybody else, but he talked to her. Um, and we have some of the transcripts of their conversations. They're quite fascinating. But she didn't just talk to Dark Avenger. She spoke to many, many virus writers. And what she discovered was that virus writers were not irredeemably evil or crazy or like the stereotype that you get in Mr. Robot of the lone wolf mentally ill but savant young man but they were like you and me you know they were largely young boys and young men who got into it because they were either bored or they found it fun they were a bit stunted socially but they aged out of that of the predilection to write viruses and she rated them on the Kol what was called the Kohlberg scale of moral development. And she found that only a very, very small percentage of the virus writers were morally abnormal. The vast majority of them were normal. They just were a little immature, in part because, I mean, this is very familiar to us, um, because they didn't see the consequences of their actions, as she uh, wrote um, in one of her articles, uh, virus writers have never seen somebody cry because they lost their thesis. Um, they thought that, oh, this is just fun and games. If you don't see the harm you cause, it's much easier to cause that harm because you can fool yourself. Dark Avenger, when she spoke to Dark Avenger to try to figure out why he did what he did, he would say all the excuses that you hear nowadays, it was, it was said back then in the early 1990s, I'm not hurting anybody, the viruses don't destroy anything, which is false because he created destructive viruses. Only rich people have computers, only people who pirate software get viruses, there are all these attempts to try to justify or excuse the behavior like a normal person would, like a psychopath, sociopath doesn't care. Oh, he cared all right. He just deceived himself into thinking that this was an okay thing to do. Again, if you think of hackers and virus writers and all these people as malevolent lone wolf geniuses who have as Mr. Robot had multiple personality disorder, you think, how can I, how can I protect myself against them? But that's not the way it is. You know, there's a range of really not terribly smart hackers to really, really smart hackers, just like there's a range in any profession. And there are definitely things you can do to protect yourself 
because ultimately, most of the time, hackers just want to make money. How do we discourage young men from pursuing a life of hacking? I had an experience with a student who uh, told me that her that she was sending her young son, who was eight years old, to a camp where they teach them for summer how to write viruses. This is a very bad idea. I teach my students how to hack. Not by the way, not how to write viruses. How to hack, but they're like they're in their twenties and thirties, and I give all the caveats every class about how not to um, uh, break the law and how this is very serious. There are computer courses where the teachers would assign computer uh, virus writing as exercises. This is not the type of uh, models we should be giving our students. There's also very innovative things that the UK has been doing. Uh, the UK has really led the way on what's called diversion programs. So if there's kind of low-level offenders are kind of caught doing some, you know, legally dubious activities, the police will kind of make a visit and tell them, like, we know um, that you're doing this, but also offer them opportunities to engage in programs that are legitimate, like hacking competitions. They set up mentoring programs. We have, it's estimated, three and a half million cybersecurity jobs waiting to be filled. If we can take low-level offenders who might ripen into attackers and turn them away from the dark side to uh, the legitimate industry, then we, we kind of kill two birds with one stone. We take somebody who might have been an attacker and we add them as one more, de- one more desperately needed defender. So I, I really congratulate uh, the UK, the Netherlands, the United States is starting to do this um, to try to divert budding black hat uh, hackers into uh, legitimate white hat defenders. Why is the internet so insecure? One of the things that you learn when, uh, one of the things that I learned when I studied the history of the internet is that the internet was self-consciously designed to be a transport system. It was designed to get packages from one place to another. It's like the trains. When you go into a, on a train, the police don't search you, ask, question you, make sure you're not taking the train to commit a crime. You just take the train. That's like what the internet is. The internet conveys messages, packets from one place to another. The internet is designed on with something called the end-to-end principle. And the idea is, I put it as like, it's, Smart on the outside, dumb on the inside. So the idea is that we, um, the internet is designed so that all the security is pushed to the endpoints and the insides just transport. And so the pressure of cybersecurity is to harden the endpoints. And of course, we're the endpoints, the humans, the users, and our devices. So if the internet inspected packets to make sure that they weren't malicious, the internet would be ridiculously slow. 
Now that puts an enormous amount of pressure on the user and on the endpoints because that's where all the security happens. Ever since the days of the first internet hacks, there's been a strong sense in the media and from other researchers that hackers have the power to commit war crimes on a previously unimaginable scale. You know, we talked about the movie War Games already. Do you think people like Ronald Reagan are just taking these movies too seriously? Or do you think our fears of cyber war are valid? Yeah, I think, uh, I, I, I think cyber war is just way overhyped way overhyped. Um, when Russia was about to invade Ukraine last year, people were saying, oh my goodness, we're going to see an enormous cyber war. We didn't see anything of the sort. We didn't see anything of the sort because on the one hand, why do you need cyber weapons when you have bombs, when you have boots on the ground, when you have tanks? The first thing I would say is that cyber weapons are not very good weapons for achieving military objectives. It's very hard to kill people with cyber weapons. Can Russia occupy the Donbass with exploits? No, they need people, boots on the ground, tanks, guns, to actually uh, occupy and defend a large territory, which they don't seem to be managed managing to do anyway. That's the first thing. The second thing is cyber weapons are not like bombs. So a bomb, you drop a bomb, it blows up, it destroys everything in its blast radius. Cyber weapons are more like chemical weapons in the sense that one is they're uncontrollable. They're very hard to control. But number two is they're species specific. Anthrax works on certain certain species, but not on others uh, other species. The same thing about malware. Malware that works on Windows doesn't work on Mac OS, and something that works on Mac OS doesn't work on Linux. That is because the downcode in each of these operating systems are different, and they they are exploited in different ways. So imagine how many weapons you would need to take down, let's say, the grid in a country, at least in the United States, there are like local power stations and they have their own network configurations, they run their own systems. How would, a, how would anybody have that many exploits to deal with so many different kinds of configurations? It's just very, te- it would, it, technically it's very hard to imagine. If you understand the way hacking works, you would, realize that it's not like dropping a nuclear weapon. It's more like, as I said, a biological or chemical uh, weapon which targets certain certain um, entities and not others. So not only are they bad at achieving military objectives, but it's not even clear the way in which they can be used on, on a wide scale to uh, take down variegated and diverse critical infrastructure. I will say one thing, and it's really important to to make this qualification. Of course, in a way, all war is cyber war now. What do I mean by that? All military systems are hooked up to digital systems. All uh, weapons are run by computers. So of course, militaries will use hacking to hack into those, those weapon systems 
air defense, trying to shut down radar. But that's always in support of the kinetic attack, like the bombs, the airplanes, the tanks. Just cyber, which is what people typically mean by cyber war, that, what you see in the movies, I think is highly unrealistic. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Separately to the big geopolitical conflicts, going back to individual experience for a moment, cybercrime against individual citizens is quickly becoming the main form of crime that any of us encounter day to day. Whose responsibility is it to stop cybercrime and what can we do individually to help protect ourselves? I say that as someone, I already mentioned this anecdote to you before we started recording, but I put down your book over the weekend and installed a new virus checker on my Mac because I was so scared and found, lo and behold, I did have a Trojan on there. Well, so, you know, that I would say if you buy my book, your computer will be safe. So, no, that's not true, but you'll be smarter for it. What I would say is, ultimately, the responsibility is going to fall to the user, just in the sense that if you get hacked, if your information is taken, if the info, your files get encrypted, I'm, I'm sorry, it, you know, you're stuck with the cost. But I think it's unfair. And, and, and there are things that um, users can do, and I'll talk about that. But I just think it's unfair to put all the responsibility on the user. I mean, think about it. We're not expected to hire private police to protect ourselves. That's what we have a government for. That's what we have a state. I think that the state should play a much bigger role in cybersecurity. I could talk about how that could happen. But ultimately, it's only the government that can really change the upcode that will allow us to be safe. And by, I, and by I say government, I, I mean, of course, the state, but I also mean like our employers, they should be putting in proper, secure IT policies so that our coworkers who make a mistake don't end up impacting the rest of us. That having been said, even though I think Really, the government and employers should be the ones who um, take the lead. There are, there are certain things that we can do. Like, you don't leave your door. I mean, maybe if you live in a very safe area, you leave your doors unlocked. Um, I live in a city. I lock my doors. I do not leave my keys running in my car. I do very basic things to keep myself safe. Um, I don't walk around holding my wallet in my hand, uh, waving it. Um, I do very basic um, things, and I think that that's what users can do. If you go back to first principles, which which I mentioned before, which is that most hacking, most cybercrime is financially motivated. Hackers don't want to hack you specifically. They want to hack as many devices as they can to make some money 
They don't want to spend time trying to get into your device. As I say, hackers are just not that into you. And so all you need to do, I shouldn't say all you need to do, but you can make yourself so much safer just by not acting recklessly. So here are certain reckless things that people do. They click on links from people they don't know. If you get information, if you get a message from somebody and you don't know who they are, don't click on that link. Just write back and say, I'm sorry, who are you? Can you tell me a bit more? Maybe Google them. Um, don't click on an attachment if you don't know who they are. This is the main vector, as they say, the main way in which malware gets on computers. Use two-factor authentication. A little bit of a pain in the neck, but it's really hard to hack somebody if they have two-factor authentication. Now, people will say, oh, you should have really, really long passwords. You should be changing your password. You know, yeah. Sure. I mean, the network administrators I know, they have really long passwords. Well, they really should have long passwords. But is, you know, who's going to bother trying to crack your password? Probably no one. Um, and so just don't leave the, don't just, don't do the equivalent of leaving your keys running in the car. That said, on the password front, you do give examples like Barack Obama's password being password. And Kanye West's phone password is zero 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 zero. That's not a good idea either. Oh, just it's to a, be clear. No, 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 no. That's that's absolutely right. So I think the most, uh, you know, the 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 top top five passwords are one two three four five six password. Um, I, 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 you know, admin. Um, I, I the, you know, just like don't. That's that's the equivalent of uh, leaving your keys running in the car. We live in a culture of massive state and corporate surveillance. Is it possible to make companies protect our data? Well, uh, why haven't they protected our data? Let's ask that question. Because of the upcode. What consequences are there to companies that have insecure systems um, that lead to massive data breaches? Well, you know, they have to, if it's a, of a certain size, they have to announce it. They may have to pay for credit monitoring, like 1995, you know, a year. I mean, this is peanuts. I mean, they, they incur reputational costs, but since it's happening to so many people, so many companies, how bad of a reputation uh, hit is it going to be? You say, well, the BBC just got hit. Okay, well, so did the NHS. So, you know, so... Um, I'll just stop you. You actually give an example in the book of Paris Hilton's phone getting hacked and that only increasing demand for the phone. Yeah, so that's, that is the wild thing. Um, a British journalist, I, I, I remember drolly responded, that's like reading about the Titanic and then booking, uh, booking your next vacation on a cruise. It is true, when her sidekick 2 was hacked in 2005, T-Mobile, which was the uh, carrier for, for, for Sidekick, was terrified that now nobody was going to buy the Sidekick 2 because now it got hacked. Everyone wanted it then. I mean, they just, they, you know, they ran out of stock. And it wasn't clear why. Some of them probably just wanted any piece of Paris Hilton. It might have also been that people didn't know that there's this thing called a smartphone, Remember, 
2005, this is before the iPhone. And everyone was using these like, you know, flip, flip phones that your parents still probably use. And I think they were amazed because the Sidekick 2 had a um, had keyboards, it had a, a D-pad for playing games, it had a screen. And I think people didn't actually even know that there was such a thing as a smartphone. But I also just think like it was Paris Hilton cell phone, so they want to get it too. Let's return to the question that you were answering before I interrupted you. Can we get governments to change the upcode to prevent data leaks, or is that futile? Oh um, no, I mean you know um, you know that old joke um, you know death penalty for parking tickets. You know you would get people stop double parking. I, I wouldn't. I'm not advocate. I'm, I'm against death penalty, and I, I would not advocate death penalty for parking tickets. But the point is, is that human beings respond to incentives, and if you don't impose any costs on people for writing bad software or for having very insecure IT practices, well, guess what? You're going to get data breaches. And then if you say to them, oh, yeah, 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 but you, you know, you have to pay for credit monitoring services for one or two years, it's just peanuts for them. So what can governments do? Well, one of the things I think governments can do is they can impose legal liability for software vulnerabilities. I mean, software is like that one of the only products that's built that has no legal liability attached to defective security. Like I said, your toaster blows up, you get your money back and you can get damages. With software, it's different. Uh, President Biden has just, um, uh, in the national cybersecurity um, strategy, has taken up uh, the proposal that I, I talk about in the book, which is uh, imposing software liability for security vulnerabilities. Now, you, now, the tech bros often will respond, whoa, 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 tech, tech is different, tech is different, you know, it'll stifle innovation, you know, our power is the tech, you know, tech can't be stifled. You know, people made all these arguments about the automobile, and people were dying like crazy on the highways. They weren't seatbelts, they weren't airbags. And Ralph Nader uh, published this book called Unsafe at Any Speed in the late 60s, which was, uh, which was really a wake-up call for people. And it really led to uh, the introduction of mandatory seatbelts. Um, uh, it led to airbags. And now highway deaths have plummeted. So if you give people reasons to write good code, they'll write good code. If you don't, they won't. It's that simple. Scott, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. This episode starred Scott Shapiro. It was presented and produced by me. And the series is made by me and Esme Bright, with help from Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. Scott's new book, Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, is out now. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>